The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 9th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As the message would go out, the natural question that would be volleyed back is saved from what and in return the explanation would come saved from God's just wrath everywhere the apostle Paul went he took great pain to explain this truth to anyone and everyone who would listen he would boldly and at the same time very gently Explain to him that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, God of God, took on human flesh and lived a perfect life. And he did this. He took on flesh and lived this perfect life so that he could later offer his life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay the debt that you and I owed to God that we could never pay in ourselves. The debt we owed to God because of our sin and at the same time in this life and through this sacrifice satisfy the just wrath of God by taking upon himself the penalty that we deserved for our sin. Paul would explain this good news to anyone and everyone who would listen that God had indeed accepted Jesus' sacrifice, proving his acceptance by raising Jesus from the dead, never to die again, so that all, anyone and everyone who would repent of their sins and believe upon this Jesus can be forgiven because their debt had been paid. They can be reconciled to God because his justice had been satisfied on the cross. Friends, this is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the message that Paul and the envoys of Christians like his that we've read about in the book of Acts would go about the Roman world proclaiming and testifying to anywhere they went to anyone who would listen. And if you were with us last week, we saw in Acts chapter 16 how the Apostle Paul and a small group of fellow believers went into the city of Philippi and proclaimed this very message. And God, for his glory and by his grace, worked through this message to establish his church there in Philippi. Friends, it is this very same message and only this message that God still continues to use to establish his church today. And it's this message that God continues to use to not simply establish the institution of his church. But it's this message that God uses to produce transformed lives in his people. New and often surprising realities. New and often surprising fruit in the lives of his people. As we begin our journey through the book of Philippians this morning in earnest, reading from that actual letter, there are two transforming realities, two amazing examples of fruit that God produces 
in the lives of his people stemming from a confidence in this gospel. As we begin the journey through this letter, I, I want you to hear as we read these verses, and I want you to begin to understand and listen throughout the entirety of the letter for these realities. When you get Jesus, when you get the gospel, you get joy. When you get Jesus, you get joy. And when you focus on Jesus, when you focus on the gospel, when your lives together are centered around the gospel, you get the surprising fruit of Christian affection. The surprising, full-throated fruit of Christian affection. Joy and affection. This morning, we're going to read through the first 11 verses of chapter 1. And as we do, I want you to listen for them. Listen not simply for the words, but listen for the feeling. Listen for the reality. Listen for the joy and the affection between Paul and this local church being communicated in the beginning of this letter. And as you listen, I want you to listen knowing that what you hear in Paul, what you hear coming from Paul to this church is not simply meant to be illustrative of Paul as a man and a reality in his life. It's meant by the grace of God to be instructive for you and I. It's meant to be instructive for what our joy and affection for one another is meant to look like. So as you listen to these first 11 verses and listen for this joy and this affection, listen as you ask yourself, what's true of Paul here? Is it true of me? Is it true of us together? Philippians chapter 1, first 11 verses. Let's read them together. Paul and Timothy, Servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers of grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Did you hear it in there? Joy and affection. When you get Jesus, when you get the gospel, you get joy. Now, Paul didn't mention joy in every single one of those first 11 verses. In fact, he only mentioned the word joy once when he said 
always, in every prayer of mine for you all, I, I make my prayer to God for you with joy. He didn't mention it in every verse. But if you just listen, you can see that the tone that Paul sets from the beginning is certainly a joyful tone. So that when you hear just that first mention of joy, it's like a chord being struck in a song that's going to resonate throughout the entirety of the letter. In fact, just, just listen for a moment to a snapshot of what Paul is going to say. He's not simply going to say that in all of his prayers, he's always making prayer for them to God with joy. He's going to say he rejoices. He, he lives and responds out of joy to God that through them Christ is being proclaimed. That's in chapter 1, verse 18. In chapter 1, verse 25, he's going to, to let them know that while he knows in his heart that if he were to die, he would get to be with Christ, and that is of greater joy to him, he's going to remain with them so that he can continue to work for their joy in the gospel. In chapter 2, he's going to ask them to have a mind amongst them like Christ that they might complete his joy. He's going to say in chapter 2 that he is glad and he rejoices with them in Christ, that he is enjoying Jesus with them. He's going to say in chapter 2 that they sent to him their pastor Epaphroditus to encourage him and he's sending him back to them that they might rejoice and enjoy the grace of God through him as well. In chapter 3, he's going to tell the Philippians in all things to rejoice, to enjoy the Lord in them. He's going to say in chapter 4 that this local church are indeed his joy. He's going to tell them two more times in chapter 4 to rejoice in the Lord in all things. And later on in chapter 4, he's going to say that he rejoiced. He acted from joy in Jesus when he thought about this church's care and affection for him. Joy, 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 joy. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. Enjoy, 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 enjoy. Contrary to what some popular opinion is, Christians are not opposed to joy. The letter of Paul to the church in Philippi is a great testament to real joy. Christians are not opposed to joy. Christians have just come to believe something that they have experienced by the grace of God, and that's simply this, that true and lasting and abiding joy stems from a different root than all of the lesser joys that we have spent so much of our life trying to chase. One of the graces to us from God in the, as the church in the 21st century is that God has preserved much of the writings from the early church fathers. And in the third century, there was an early church father named Cyprian. And we have some of his writings and some of his letters. And we have a letter that he wrote to a friend of his named Donatus. And, and in this letter, he wrote this. I just want you to hear what he has to say. He says, this seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. So sitting in a pretty garden under the shadow of these vines, everything looks great. But if I climbed some great mountain 
and I looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Thieves on the high road, pirates on the seas, in the amphitheaters, men murdered to please applauding crowds, under all roofs, nothing but misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet, in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and a holy people. Listen to what he says. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am now one of them. See, all of us, every single last one of us born on this earth, live a life that is driven by the desire for joy. We were created for joy. We were hardwired by God for joy. We need and want joy like our bodies need and want food and water. Yet, as real as that is, it so often seems elusive to us. Just when we think we have it, just when we think we've got control of it, it seems to slip through our grasp like water running through our fingers. No one has yet helped me grasp this in such real and understandable ways like a writer named Tony Rinke. Some of you might be familiar with Tony. He's written a number of popular books, but I want you to hear what he has to say about this and, and see if you, you can't make sense even of your own pursuit of joy in what he has to say. Tony says, for many of us, this quest for joy leads with terrible irony to despair. We pursue joy in materialism and we get stuck in debt. We pursue joy in our children and we gnaw ourselves with worry over their well-being. We pursue marital perfection and we grumble when we find our spouse's faults. We aim for joy and we find doubt. So, we conclude that the barriers to abiding joy are the unhealthy choices that clog our lives. See if what he's about to say sounds familiar to you at all. We turn to self-improvement. We make new resolutions. We scour the internet for list blogs that promise lasting change with easy effort. We buy productivity apps for our phones. We resolve to be more chill parents, sexier spouses, better friend winners, more purposeful people influencers. We decide we need to sit less and walk more. We need to sleep more and eat less. We drink more water, less coffee than soda. We pay off credit card debt and build our savings. We clip coupons. We invest money in a retirement plan. We set aside funds for a future vacation. We clean out the garage. We purge our closet. We buy apps to track our progress and planners to micromanage our days. We commit to staying on top of our emails, checking our phone less, watching less television, visiting the library more, and reading our neglected stack of books. We chase a long list of changes to sharpen our daily routine, tweak our daily habit, and find our daily joy. Yet the message, he says, in all of these things is simply this. Joy can be yours, but only if you earn it. And so he says, if you're like me, you take stock of your disordered life, the cluttered corner, 
the grubby margin of your regular days and the unkept middle where you do most of your living. And the result is painfully deflating. Rather than increasing your joy, all this introspection has done is breed regret and self-loathing. You were made for joy. You need it. You want it. Like your body wants food and water. Yet everywhere we go, it seems so elusive. What if the roots for the joy that we were created for go deeper than just our well-laid-out planners? What if the joy that we were created for is not found at the end of a to-do list or a well-executed fitness plan? Better yet, what if we actually believe that God is more concerned about our joy than we are? and that he has been planning for our joy since before we were even born. Friends, the real root of the joy for which you were created for, an abiding and lasting, not a fleeting joy. It's not found in a comfortable, well-executed life. It's found in the gospel itself. I mean, simply consider this as you listen to the joy flowing out of the Apostle Paul in this letter to this church. Paul wrote this letter locked up in stocks in a prison in Rome, awaiting the verdict on his life. All of the pleasures, all of the possibilities, all of the potential that the entire Roman Empire held out to everybody all the places for joy to be found, just like all the varied potential and places for joy to be found in 21st century Richmond. One commentator said, with all of that that exists, how is it that the most joyful person in the Roman Empire is locked up in jail? How is that even possible? With all the possibility and potential held out to him, unable for him to get to, how is the most joyful person person in Rome, a man that's in jail. He said it's possible because Paul understood something. That the joy for which he and everyone else was created for is not found in a trouble-free or a stuff-filled life. It's found in Jesus. You get Jesus, you get joy. In fact, while sitting in that prison, awaiting the verdict on his life, not knowing in the next 5, 10, 15 minutes or 15 hours or 15 months that verdict might come. Paul's writing this letter abounding and overflowing in joy to God for this church. And he says, I know my desire is to depart and be with Christ. It's in verse 23. For that would be better. It'd be better for me to go ahead and leave now and be with Jesus. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, Paul said, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. For your joy that you might enjoy Jesus and the grace of God more deeply. I know it's better for me to stay with you. I pray for you and all of my remembrances to God with 
great joy. Everything I do, I'm doing that you might enjoy Jesus and the grace of God more deeply and more fully in everything that we encounter, whether you're locked up with me in a defense of the gospel or you're living a daily life around a world that has never tasted the good news of God's grace. We do all of it in joy, Paul says. We rejoice as we enjoy Jesus in the midst of the life that he gives us. Listen, friends, Paul is not denying that he has very real needs that need to be met. This is not some Christian Pollyanna rose-colored pie-in-the-sky perspective on life. Paul is sitting in a first-century prison in Rome. I don't know if you knew this or not, but but prisons in those days were not full service like they are now. There wasn't a staff to cook for you and showers for you to clean in and clothes for you to wear and beds for you to sleep in and activities for you to do. When you were in prison in Rome in the first century, it was a 100% self-service affair. Unless you had people who could push past the shame of being connected to you, a, a convicted prisoner, unless you had people who loved you with such a deep and abiding affection that they could overcome what it meant to be associated with you, unless you had people that could come and bring you food and bring you clothes and bring you what you needed, you would sit and rot and die. That's just the reality. Paul isn't denying that he has very real needs. But what Paul knows is that because he has Jesus, he has real joy. When you get Jesus, you get joy. When you get the gospel, you get joy. So the responsible question for us as we're reading this and thinking about this together is to ask ourselves, where do I get my joy? Friends, there's nothing more important in the world for you to be considering than that. You see, if the joys that you enjoy the joys that you even achieve, all those things like that that piece that I read you from Tony Rinke, all those different ways that we try to find our daily joy, all those little daily joys that we enjoy and achieve, if behind them is not joy in the gospel, if behind them is not a deep and more abiding enjoyment of Jesus and God's grace, those lesser joys, I promise you, will prove to be fleeting. They will prove themselves to be like water running through your hands. And one day, in the irony of ironies, they will prove to even be damning to you. You see, a day is going to come when we will be required of God to give an account for our joys. What did we live for? What did we look to fulfill us? God created us to find our deepest and most abiding and lasting joy in him. He created us hardwired for this joy to be found in him. And yet if we spend our life looking everywhere else, looking under every other rock for this joy, here's the thing. Those lesser joys that we experience now, on that day will prove to be evidence of our rebellion and are deserving of judgment for not finding our joy in him. How ironic that we find ourselves bent around the axle on those joys now, and they prove that we never knew a deep and abiding joy one day in him. 
Friends, what brought Paul real joy was not only that he, but that others could indeed be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. And he and others could really, truly experience, even now, the joy for which they were created for, a joy that will last and prove on that last day not to be condemning of us, but evidence of a true and sincere abiding faith in Jesus. Friends, where do you find your joy? If you've never considered this question, there's nothing more important in the world for you to think about. If you're willing to consider what it means for you to trade your lesser joys for one that will not end, if you're at all interested in understanding what it means to truly enjoy Jesus, to enjoy the grace of God, friends, please let us know. Grab one of the pastors here. Grab someone who invited you. Grab someone who's nearby you. Ask someone to help you. We want to help you understand what it means to believe upon this Jesus. Not just that you might be saved, but that you might know the joy for which you were created. When you get the gospel, you get joy. That's the first thing you can see even in the beginning of this letter that's going to carry itself all the way through. But there's a second part. When you focus on the gospel, when this gospel, when Jesus becomes the central and abiding reality, you, you get the surprising fruit of a, of a different, a, a Christian affection for one another. I don't know when we read these first 11 verses if you actually picked up on or, or even began to feel in Paul's words the depth of his affection for this church. I mean, he's not just writing to a group of people in the church. He's not just writing to leaders in the church. He's not just writing to a particular person in the church. He's writing to the totality of the church. It's a y'all letter or you skies, wherever you're from. And the affection that you hear and the affection that you feel, it, it stems from the same place the joy that Paul is speaking of stems from. It stems from the gospel. And if we think about it and we slow down and we look at exactly what Paul has to say here, there are at least two things, at least two things in these verses that also stem from the gospel that produce this broader fruit of affection in our lives. And I want you to see them before we get too far into all that Paul has to say. The first thing that the gospel produces in the lives of God's people that gives rise to this new kind of and often surprising affection that we have for one another is a shared identity. The gospel produces for us and in us, a shared or a common identity. Look back at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. To all the saints. Underline that, circle that, highlight that, star that. Whatever you do when you write in your Bible, however you make note of things that are very important, do it right there because I absolutely love 
how determined Paul is to remind the church of who they are because of God's grace. This is a shared identity that is ours because of grace. When you read Paul's letters, even here in the letter to the church in Philippi, and you come across Paul greeting the saints that are in that church, he's not talking about a special class of Christian. He's not talking about a special group that's had to do a certain number of miracles over a certain amount of time, who's lived a certain amount of years that could be confirmed by a certain council. That's not what he's talking about at all. In fact, the, the word behind this word saints, that we translate saints, throughout the Bible we translate it as a noun in some places, as an adjective in some places. The word simply means to be set apart. So in the Bible when we translate it as a noun, it's translated as saints. But when it's translated as an adjective, do you know what it's translated as? Do you know what it means? It means holy. Saints are those who have been set apart by God and made holy by God for his glory. Friends, that's simply who we are by God's grace. Politically, this church, they were Philippians. They were Roman citizens by virtue of a battle that had been fought almost a hundred years before Paul showed up on the scene. They were Roman citizens, Philippians specifically, just like you and I are Richmonders. But Paul is reminding them of something much deeper and more transcendent. The grace of God has made them, just as it's made us, partakers of the divine nature. He's made us holy. You know, holy is one of the most intimate words used to describe the character of God. And when Paul calls God's people saints, Paul is reminding them that the holy God by grace has given them his title and his character. When it's a noun, it's saints. When it's an adjective, it's holy. By the grace of God, God has set us apart. He has made us holy in his son. We are saints by the grace of God. Everyone who has believed upon Jesus shares this new identity as a saint. The gospel produces this shared and common identity amongst God's people that gives rise to a unique affection amongst God's people that no other earthly association or commonality can produce. And we're going to see it fleshed out and lived out in surprising ways throughout the letter. But that's not the only thing the gospel does. Alec Motyer, who's one of my favorite Christian theologians, and so I'll say this, anytime you study a book of the Bible and you like to read commentaries, for those of you that like to read it, I've said it before, I'll say it again, look first to see if Alec Motyer has written a commentary on that book. If he has, buy it. It'll be the most accessible and informative commentary you'll probably ever own of that book. And praise God, he wrote one on Philippians. So he's helping me out a lot. And he said this about this common identity. He said, great though our privileges are, having been set apart by God, made holy by God through faith in Jesus Christ, all the riches, the privileges, the blessings, the protections that are ours as God's children, as great as those things are, he said they're not to be equated with dressing gowns and slippers. So whatever you think about, when you think about being a son or a daughter of the Most High God, 
Whatever comes to your mind when you think of all the riches and the privileges and the blessings of being God's, being set apart by him, what comes to your mind shouldn't be dressing gowns and slippers. It should be a staff and shoes for a pilgrimage, armor for a battle and a plow for a field. Because, he said, responsive obedience is what's meant to characterize us. For the saint in Christ Jesus is necessarily also a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul introduces himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. And Paul is no different than anyone else that he's writing to. All of us, by the grace of God, are saints set apart and made holy by God. We're all called to be his servants as well. All of it because of grace. When you think about the realities of what that actually means, what it means to live your life set apart to the glory of God, made holy by the grace of God, living in responsive obedience in whatever circumstance and situation God puts you in as a servant of Christ Jesus, it can begin to feel overwhelming. Which is why I love verse 2. I've always taken verse 2 as a standard kind of introduction to his letters, but when you think about it in the logic of what he has said, in relationship to what the gospel has done in our lives, it becomes altogether real in a different way. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's the grace and peace of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes us saints, but it's not just that. It's the same grace and peace from God and Jesus that enables our service and obedience as servants. See, everything from who we are and how we actually live the life that God has called us to, everything from our joy to the shared identity, it's gospel from the start to the finish. It's in Jesus and of Jesus and from Jesus and to Jesus to the glory of God. You get Jesus, you get joy. You focus on Jesus and all of a sudden you recognize this shared identity that God has given you with others found in him. I mean, don't forget what a mixed up crew this church was in Philippi. If Paul's affection for them and their affection for one another were rooted in a common interest, they would have never lasted. See, earthly associations... Earthly preferences, earthly affinities, coming from the same place, having the same background, living in the same socioeconomic bracket, liking the same sports, liking the same teams, liking the same food, all of those things that we seek to sequester ourselves and group ourselves around and find our common affection and joy in, none of them can produce the kind of affection and joy you hear and you see in this letter. None of those things can produce the kind of affection that pours out of your heart to someone else saying, I long for you and have an affection for you that's that of Jesus Christ. None of those other earthly associations and affinities can, can create the kind of affection in your heart that Paul will have and later when he writes it, you, all of you, y'all, as different and as mixed up and as Far from what is common to me, you are my joy. You are my crown. See, this kind of affection is produced by an enjoyment of Jesus and the grace of God. 
And it stems out of that into a shared identity by grace. But it's not just the shared identity the gospel produces. There's also a shared purpose created by the gospel that binds God's people together and overflows in this kind of affection. Look very quickly at verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because, it's a very important word right there, because of your partnership, or some of your Bibles will say fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now I want you to know if you're using an English standard version of the Bible, the translators, when they were working on the book of Philippians, chose to translate the word fellowship, partnership. And they did that to try to help you understand what Paul was saying because everywhere else in the New Testament where this word is used, it's translated fellowship. But they understood something as scholars and pastors in our modern world. We mess that word up tremendously. When we say fellowship, we think a certain hall or spot in a building for people to get together and have coffee and donuts. When we say fellowship, we think a, a certain kind of meal in our home or, or, or event in our home where we enjoy the company of other Christians. That's not what fellowship means when it's used here in the New Testament. The word fellowship in the New Testament, the word that's used here, actually comes from the business world. It has a commercial overtone to it. When people would pool their money together, when, when five guys would pool their money together to buy a set of fishing boats and nets so they could go out and start a fishing business, they were said to have entered into a fellowship together. A fellowship, by definition, was a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. It's a far cry from a fellowship hall or a fellowship meal. It's the self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Far more like the fellowship of the ring from what I've heard. But I haven't seen it, so don't hold me to it. See, Paul says from the very first day until now, this church has not shrunk back. They've rolled up their sleeves, they've entered in, they've committed themselves to the advance of the gospel. When Paul was unjustly beaten in their own town and put in jail, they stood with him. When Paul left Philippi and went about the rest of his missionary journeys, they prayed for him. They financially supported him. They sent their own pastor, Epaphroditus, to encourage Paul while he was in prison. In chapter 4, Paul is going to say, you have not ceased from laboring side by side with me for the gospel. A thousand times over, they could have abandoned him. A thousand times over, because of the shame of being associated with him, they could have left him, but they didn't. So it makes complete sense that since the gospel is the root of Paul's greatest joy, he would overflow and pray with joy at the reality of others joining him in the cause of the gospel. Friends, when you think about your brothers and sisters here in this local church, do you share even a portion of this same joy and affection? I hope you realize that membership in the local church is the same thing as a fellowship in the gospel. Together, we are committing ourselves in a self-sacrificial way to the common task of making the message of Jesus credible and visible in this area. 
As a member of the local church, you are partnering in the gospel with others. As you pray for each other, you are partnering in the gospel. As you help one another to understand what it means to enjoy and respond in obedience to Jesus in a particular circumstance in life, you are partnering in the gospel. When you are helping those who have never known or tasted of the grace of God through faith in Christ understand what it means to repent of their sins and enjoy Jesus, you are partnering in the gospel. When you take time on a morning like this to help our children in their classes understand who Jesus is and what it means to respond to him in faith and enjoy him all of their days, you are partnering in the gospel. You are a part of a fellowship in the gospel. When you give of your tithes, when we gather together like this, you are partnering in the work of the gospel in this city and from this place throughout the world. That's what the local church is. Redemption Hill is a partnership, a fellowship in the gospel. And like Paul and this church in Philippi, it's meant by God to fill you with joy. And it's meant to produce in you a full-throated affection for your fellow partners. So here's what we'll do. Look around. Like seriously, look around. Your right, your left, in front of you, behind you. Do you see fellow saints made holy and set apart by the grace of God to enjoy Jesus with all that they are? Do you see fellow servants of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit, laboring to make the message of Jesus credible and visible in this city? Is there an affection for them in you? Is there a joy that overflows when you consider them? Is there a gratitude to God for them? Friends, this is what the gospel produces in our hearts. This morning as we prepare as God's people to respond to his word as we receive communion, I want you to just take a moment as we reflect to consider the bread that you'll take and remember the body of Jesus broken in your place for your sins and consider the fact that it was broken for your joy. That you may know the true and abiding joy for which you were created. And when you consider taking that bread and dipping it in that cup, remembering the blood of Christ shed for you, I want you to take a moment to consider the fact that it was shed out of an eternal affection for you. There is a joy and an affection that comes from enjoying Jesus that God the Father intends to produce in us and through us for one another. And it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always easy for Paul. In fact, later in this letter, we're going to come across an incident where Paul is going to have to speak some very direct and very hard words to a pair of people in the church who are threatening the unity and the truth of this affection to the way they're speaking. It's not going to be easy for us. We come from a tremendously vast array of backgrounds and experiences and preferences. But here's the thing. We share together something far more transcendent and lasting than any of those things. And what we share together changes everything. Friends, Jesus changes everything. 
When you get Jesus, you get joy. And when he remains the focus, we get the surprising fruit of a Christ-like affection for one another. The church is precious to God. And what he has produced by his gospel is meant to be precious to us as well. I'm going to pray for us, and as the musicians come up, we are going to take a moment to reflect on God's word as we continue to respond as we receive communion. I'll pray, and all of those who have, by the grace of God, repented of their sins and believed upon this Jesus, who have known and are learning to live in the enjoyment of him and his grace, you will be invited to come forward to receive communion. If you are here this morning and you want to know more about what it means to repent of your sins, to enjoy Jesus, to know this joy and this grace, listen to me. Please, don't come forward when people start walking forward. Grab one of the pastors. Grab someone else. Let us help you better understand what that means. And after we have received communion, we'll sing We'll make much of Jesus and we'll be sent out from here as his people, set apart and made holy. Saints in Christ for God's glory. Let me pray and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you that what you have made us for, you have provided. Lord, the joy for which you created us to experience and know is a joy that you give us in your son. God, help us to Stop chasing so many rabbit trails for joy. Lord, help us to know what it is to enjoy you, to enjoy your grace, to enjoy your son. Help us to know this true and abiding joy that transcends the circumstances and situations of life and that binds us together with your people in a common affection and identity and purpose that nothing else we could ever create on this earth can do. Lord, that is what a watching world is waiting to see. Lord, we ask that you would do that work in our hearts this morning for your glory, for our joy, in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.